Nice. Wonder Woman prayed to Athena. And all I could think of is, I pray to God and don't get anything. She prays to Athena and has an invisible jet. Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of a sacred fire, where speakers gather to share their wisdom and insights. Creating a sacred space where all are welcome to warm their hands, here are your hosts, Caitlin Stormbreaker, Sarenth Odinson, and Jim Two Snakes discuss spirituality, mythology, animism, and culture around a virtual sacred fire. Welcome. 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 Won't you join us around Grandfather Fire? Hail to you, gentle-handed ones. Hail to you, skilled ones. Hail to you, healers. Hail Er, Hail Mengloth, holy ones, who bless the staff with skill, wisdom, compassion, and care, who bless the herbal healer with insight, cunning, understanding, and knowledge, who bless our spiritual healers with wisdom, understanding, care, and power. Er and Mengloth, holy healers, you who sit in Liefjaberg, that sacred place, hail to you, holy ones, for your invitations to the healers and to the healing. Thank you ever, ever, ever for your waterfalls of blessings, for your places of healing, for the moments between pain and recovery, for the time when death takes its toll and we can slip painlessly into the next world to be with our ancestors. Thank you for all your blessed moments, the little scratches covered up with a bandage, the catharsis that comes from revealing pain, the healing that can range across families and communities when the truth is spoken. Hail Er and Mengloth, holy healers. May you ever be hailed. Best wild. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number 108. I'm your host, Jim Two Snakes, joined, as always, by my good friends and co-hosts, Sarah Thornton and Caitlin Stormbreaker. How are you both doing? Well, considering the dumpster fire that has been this year so far, (laughs) I have had... uh, some very good and shining moments. Actually, I posted the first two chapters of my upcoming novel, which still right. no potential publication yet, but that's the ultimate goal. And I've had like such beautiful glowing reviews about it. And especially from people who like zombie apocalypse stories are not their thing. I've been told by more than like at least a handful of people that are like, I don't like this, but I would totally read this book. I, I'm I'm with them. That I'm one of those people. I, I that's not my preferred genre, but uh, I really loved that first chapter. Yeah, I and I was just like blown away by it. And it's just kind of like, a, all right, I need to get this like out there because I need people to tell me to keep going. And it <laughs> was a resounding success. So I was like, Yay! holy <laughs> shit, what is happening? I don't know what's going on. That's so awesome. Um, but today 
uh, we found out that the new member of our family that will be joining us is going to be a little boy. And of course, we are an open-minded family. So when they get old enough, they can decide then. But currently, we're going to have a new baby boy in our family. Awesome. So cool. Excited. Yeah, cool. and it's exactly what the parents wanted too. So now they have one of each and now they're done. So <laughs> that's really cool. We have the collection now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep. How about you, Sarah? How are you? I'm okay. Uh considering my uh my father in law passed away this morning. Um yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. And you know, honestly, it was the best thing for him. Uh cancer is a motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Um, I was very happy that, uh, we got to see him. I was very happy. We got to send him on. Uh, it was, it was very nice. Um, and, uh, my, my brother-in-law snuck some booze up and, uh, we hailed him in probably the most <laughs> heathen way we could have. We sat around and drank and told stories. I drank for my wife cause Silverleaf doesn't drink. So I, I drank on her behalf and uh we toasted him and told stories around his deathbed which was very nice until they said wow. okay we need to take him away <laughs> <laughs> it's been 4 hours guys sorry yeah so <laughs> you know I, I think i think there's kind of an unspoken rule in in hospital settings like that to where if somebody is in the hospital that is either actively dying or have just died, that they kind of turn a blind eye to whatever booze they see in the room because they're Pretty like much, oh, that's- right that's yep. not there. We don't see that. Yep. Something similar happened uh, when my grandfather was in hospice. Uh, we snuck him a beer. <laughs> nice. And also had one with him. So it was, and even a nurse walked through and I saw her just like immediately turn her head the other direction, went around the corner to the. That's right. To nothing. You saw nothing. nothing. <laughs> so we uh, shared a bottle of Evan Williams and a bottle of, oh, I took a picture of it. I can't remember what it is offhand, but it was a, a deep red wine that I'd never had before. It was very good. And a two hearted wow. IPA. Nice. We didn't, we didn't chew through all of it. Mind you. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but sure. but uh, it was, it was a good celebration of his life and we'll be setting up a memorial for him so we can do a proper memorial with the whole family. At some right. Point. But aside from, aside from being there for his, uh, not very long after he passed, um, you know, cause we had, we had, mercifully been able to see him twice before in the hospital and um yeah aside from that just been recovering from convocation enjoying my vacation as much as i can and already started working on two new workshops for teens uh one about heathen gods and the other one about runes and getting started nice. studying those from a, a from a teenage uh workshop perspective so the heathen gods one's written which it, it blows my mind about how quickly that came about so, <laughs> well, I mean, that's awesome. We all got to remember that sometimes when things like this are created, we are just the vessel in which they are written through. Pretty much. <laughs> so, so how about you, Jim? Yeah, I'm not not doing too bad. Just working away. Um, if the listeners detect it, there's a little bit of change in my voice. I had oral surgery on Thursday, so I'm relearning some diction. So, <laughs> yeah. It is what it is, but getting getting used to where your tongue is supposed to be in your mouth, right? Right, exactly. That's it. I feel like Doctor Who, like your teeth. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but that's awesome. That that's such a that's such a great thing for you. I'm so it happy is. that Thank you, you were Thank able you. to do that. I mean, it's one of those things that's uh you know, even even here in the context of audio, it's hard to talk about, but that was one of the things that's bothered me my entire life. So now it's getting corrected, which is really nice. Yeah. Um 
I did want to ask how Convocation and Nordic Fire went for both of you individually. If you want to give us a, give a little brief snapshot of how those went. Sure, sure. go ahead, Storm. Um, yeah, we, I mean, for us, it was just a pretty normal uh, weekend as always, uh, except this year we took uh, Matt's daughter, her husband, and uh, their daughter. And it, they had a really cool thing set up this year to where you would have to find specific characters wandering around the festival and they would send you on different quests. Oh, fun. Yeah. So they had a, a, a thief, a, a weaver, they had a bard, they had a, I think it was a barbarian, but I'm not totally sure. Um, but you would have to, you had like their picture and their name, and then you would have to like look around and find like who they were. And one of them was, um, go to this specific merchant tent and find the names of all the bears. And there was a merchant in there that had created uh, stuffed bears that had different cloaks. And so you had to go in and pick out like, okay, well, that one's got Elsa and this oh, one's fun. got Olaf and this one's yeah. got, you know, Slytherin house. And you'd have to bring that information back to him and he would tie a ribbon on or give you a ribbon and say, hey, you completed the, the task or whatever. So that oh, was just fun. A, a neat addition to it. And yeah, it was, it was fun. I mean, of course, with anything heavily Nordic festival, you had the uh, people who showed up that were a little more right-leaning than you would like, but the (laughs) runners, the organizers of the festival made it very clear Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, um, you know, this is a place of inclusion. We welcome all walks of life here. This is a celebration of you know, this sort of thing. And it's just us coming together and having a great time. So any sorts of discrimination or hate or anything of that nature is not a- allowed. And you will be expelled from the festival if it's brought to our attention. Which, so glad they put that out front. Yeah. And I'm I'm really appreciative of that sort of thing. But yeah, it was it was good. Excellent. How did convocation go? Convocation was excellent. Um, this is probably one of the best years I think they've had. And I'm really looking forward to next year. Uh, the only thing that I, I would say is like a thing that they need to work on is definitely institute a solid masking policy because they were supposed to have something up on the website and it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, convocation was an amazing time. I'm very happy that I got to uh, teach at it. I got four classes I was able to teach this year and every one of them was packed, which shocked the hell out of me. I had an excellent time. I had a lot of excellent connections because you know when you don't come to a convention scene for a while and then you know about almost three years of absence from con and all of a sudden boom now we're all right. back together and it's like okay right. yeah i went to uh, opening ritual for the first time in a long while i'm glad i did because baba teddy and lady kate ran it it was an excellent excellent um opening and the closing ritual was excellent as well being able to have the space again and being able to teach again and being able to go to classes again was just fantastic. I'm really. That's awesome. Yeah. These classes did take a lot out of me. So I didn't go to as many workshops as I wanted to this year, but. Understandable. You know, I did, I did four this year. So <laughs> that's know. a lot. That's yeah. a lot. I did uh, encountering the runes, which is working with the runes as spirits. I did oath and metaphysics with uh, mother multiverse, which we've had on the show before. She is awesome. Um, we are not going to be putting that workshop on for a while because metaphysically that one is kind of rough for us mm-hmm. uh, because we talk about, well, you know, there's the intellectual part of 
making oaths, and then there's the spiritual experience of oath making and oath breaking. And right. So there's those components to it make us a little hesitant to do it every year and every year. So yeah, understandable. Uh, being a spirit worker went off really well. And the ancestor workshop that I ran went exceptionally well. I was surprised and happy to see how many people participated. So That's overall, fantastic. I mean, I had about 35, 45 people, uh, 50 at one point for one class. So it was intense. Sweet. Yeah. So it was, it was a lot of fucking people. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot. It was good though. It was very good. That's good. And, you know, there's always the the after workshop talks that you know people bring you stuff to talk about and work with them on. So, right. Uh, overall, looking forward to next year, and I'm happy to happy I went. Awesome. That sounds really good. Um, I'm going to have you introduce our guest here in a minute, but first I want to go over a couple things. Namely, I want to welcome our new Patreon supporters, Don T. Kindling, and Grim, who is our very first fire drake which gets him a Yule gift from us and a quarterly reading from one of the co-hosts. So oh, sure awesome. let us know who you want your first reading from, wow. Rim. And also our last episode, 107, this is 108. 107 was about authenticity and it was just the three of us talking and we got some really good feedback about that. And I know Sarah had wrote about it on his blog, but also show friend Cammy shared a prize nominated essay on authenticity and gender and friend of the show, Snow, shared a great blog post they wrote as well. And the link to both of those blogs will be in this episode's show notes. And I'll also probably throw them on our Facebook page. So just wanted to let you know that was we really appreciate all the feedback. We got a ton of comments on our Discord and just people really seem to like that episode. And we appreciate the feedback a lot. And I think it's something we should consider doing more in the future is just picking a topic and hashing it out just because of I how think so. popular that one was. So, Yep. Yep. I, I think our listeners like that. So uh, maybe with our, our, this episode, I'll throw a poll on what other topics we should cover. So we'll, we'll see what yeah, happens. Or if, so. or if you have a topic you want us to discuss, let us know and we'll, yep. we'll hash through it like we did with the authenticity one. <laughs> we are easy to find on social media. So, all right. With that, Sarah, I'll have you introduce our guest. All right, everybody. So I'm going to be welcoming Ms. Lauren Crow to the podcast. Uh, she's been a heathen since 2002 and started off as a member of Black Bear Kindred of Central Arkansas since its founding in 03 and has been a active presence in heathenry since and currently uh, serves as the steer of the trough. And I'm really excited to have you on. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, previous to this uh, episode, uh, Lauren also ran Heathen History, which is on, currently on hiatus because, uh, as she mentioned previous to the show opening, each one of these is kind of like researching the uh, volume one, two, or three, which are now available through the trough. Uh, it's like researching one of those for the Heathen History podcast. So I really appreciate you taking time and clearing your schedule to be able to come on and join us. I'm happy to be here. And yeah, definitely. Um, it, we are on, for those of you who don't know, I co-host Heathen History with Ben Wagoner. Um, and Ben is the primary author of all three of the Artrose books. So he was feeling massive burnout after the last one was released. So we did take a brief hiatus, but we have everything written. We have scripts written. And as soon as I get moved into my new house, we are going to start recording again. Uh, so we will have some episodes up and ready to go. And I will give your listeners a sneak peek. Um, we are going to do part two on the Theodish. We are going to do a deep dig into uh, Amnesil 
where does it come from? Is it a problematic symbol or is it ancient? Um, those are the two scripts that we have finished right now. So, Ooh, uh, and nice. Theodish part two is going to include all the stuff that happened post 2010. So if you are in the know about heathenry 2010 to current, um, I, it's going to get ugly. Um, it's, it's not a good story to tell, but it's an important one. And I probably will not get a very kind email from Garmin Lord about that one like I did the first one. Mm-hmm. I mean, generally, <laughs> if you're getting unkind emails about things that you're saying, you're probably saying the right things. I mean, that is, that's fair. Garmin Lord just emailed me to, uh, to tell me my pronunciation was good and then sent me a book about the role of men and women in the world, which basically told me I was doing it wrong. So. Oh, yeah. It's nice that he (laughs) sent you a book and didn't just tell you you were doing it wrong because he's a man and you're a woman. But, you know, whatever. Yeah, whatever. I work in tech. I'm used to being men telling me I'm doing it wrong. So, (laughs) yeah, I I worked in the auto industry for most of my life. I understand. Yeah. Yeah, I work work in IT, so I'm used to it. Yeah, it's whatever. Um, But, yeah, it's, it's exciting to be here and be able to talk with you guys. And, of course, I have been around for a very long time so i have a lot of stories i'm happy to share with you guys about a lot of topics so wherever you guys want to dive in i'm ready to go (laughs) well let's kind of start at the beginning tell us a little bit about yourself how you found yourself on this path and maybe a little sprinkle in a little bit and get us up to date to where you are now so i was born in arkansas i'm from arkansas that's where i live currently um and i was raised independent fundamentalist baptist for those of you who don't know what that is um, and are familiar with pop culture, think the Duggars um, is how I was raised. Only my parents weren't quiverful. They didn't have a bajillion children. But very, 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 very conservative Baptist. Um, in fact, I grew up around Mike Huckabee, his campaign. Uh, my parents are friends with him still. And I attended church. You know, I, I like to joke that we were there Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday. If uh, the preacher was going to wash windows on Thursday night, we would fill into our pew and watch. So, and then when I was in the summer before 11th grade, I was sexually assaulted by a member of our church and was forced to get up and apologize for being sexually assaulted. And that sent me, that's very normal within that culture. Uh, Women are always to blame for the sins of men in sexual Mm. things. That's very normal. Um, I have been in therapy for years and years to deal with it. But the upside to that is I went to boarding school after that. Um, and my roommate at boarding school was, is named Mariah. She and I are still very good friends. She was a second generation Wiccan. And her dad practiced this thing called Ossetry. And that nice. was the very first time I ever heard that phrase. 1995, right? So... We had this pagan bookstore, new age bookstore. I wouldn't call it a pagan bookstore. They had like two shelves of pagan books. Everything else was angels and Sylvia Brown and, you know, typical Arkansas kind of, you know, it was in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And we used to go down there um, and I bought my very first pagan book there because it was 1995. It was Silver Ravenwolf, of course. And uh, that was my introduction to paganism. And I've kind of been here since with some brief forays back into having to fake being Christian because I had to live with my parents. I went to college, joined a coven that ended horribly um, because it was the 90s. And then um, 
moved back to Arkansas in the early 2000s. I was in Louisiana at the time. Moved back to Arkansas. Mm. Um, really was disheartened with Wicca at the time. And so I started and I was raised with a great grandmother that was really into genealogy. and had taught me Norse mythology. And I guess I should throw this story in because it's kind of adorable and it should teach you that Raleigh should have been on this path my whole time. When I was about four, um, somebody in my family gave me some Wonder Woman, like age appropriate books on tape. And Wonder Woman prayed to Athena. And all I could think of is I pray to God and don't get anything. She prays to Athena and has an invisible jet. I I see no, the logic (laughs) is to pray to Athena. I, I mean, mean, that's perfect four-year-old logic there. Yeah, and you get the, what is it, the lasso of truth, too? Like, yeah. Yeah, she gets all this cool shit. Of course I'm going to pray to Athena. Needless to say, I got in a lot of trouble for that. <laughs> but I kind of started down that path. So when I was, I was living in Arkansas around 2000, um, and I was looking for Norse paganism. And I start searching and i run across what was called austria at the time because in the early 2000s it was also true or theodism those were your two options there was heathenry wasn't really a word that was used and i just so happened to jump on an old website called witch vox which is no longer it was a great site and there was this guy there named dr beowulf and i sent him an email and he and i corresponded ended up meeting up with my now ex and mike's husband was with me and that would be Ben Wagoner, who is my kindred brother. And a year later, we started a kindred. Um, I've kind of, I did take a step into try into um, back into Wicca briefly um, because I was attending Wilson Steen. And mm-hmm. that's really the only way you can get like, like your two choices for any kind of pagan education are Cherry Hill and Wilson Steen. And at the time I was disabled and Wilson Steen is a whole lot cheaper than Cherry Hill. So but for the most part, you know, I've I've always my heart's kind of always been in heathenry. Um, I did join the troth in 2004, left in 2009 because it was just my tolerance for the drama that was going on was very low. Fair. Uh, and then came back uh, in 2015, and it's a it's you know it's kind of been a an interesting journey. You know, our kindred has been together now almost 20 years which makes all of us feel really old. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we we were the first inclusive kindred in Arkansas. And at this point in time, we're probably the most active. Uh, there is one that's down around kind of on the border of Texas and Arkansas, and there's one in Memphis, but we're really kind of the most active one. And really, that's you know, kind of been it. I got really into heathenry. You know, I've been in, um, I started doing, I worked in radio until 20... 2009 um and then when the economy bottomed out and clear channel bought every radio station known to man i lost my job uh so did everyone else and um got into podcasting after that with heathen talk which is really hard to find now because of an atheist podcast called talk heathen so if you search it it's almost impossible to find now Uh, but it is still on youtube if you if you look hard enough it's there and then after that, did a podcast called Sheathenry with my friend Avidar, uh, where we talked about women's issues in heathenry. And now I do heathen history with my kindred brother, as well as uh, heathen conversations on YouTube, uh, where we uh, talk to different Trost members. And uh, coming up after, once again, after I move, because everything's kind of in a mess and my studio's packed up, uh, we will be uh, launching a show on Twitch. 
after that, a weekly streaming show on Twitch with a rotating hosting cast to talk about heathenry because there's not enough. Yeah, there's really not enough of that on that space. And so we're really trying to get more. And that's one of the reasons, like, also we've really, as the trove, and we focus on things like TikTok. We focus on things where people, there's not enough good information. And I feel like that often is a problem. There's not enough good information. And that's been a real struggle. You know, when I, when we started Heathen Talk, there were almost no podcasts. And what there were were Red Ice Radio, you know, very racist, bigoted things. So now, of course, there's a ton. You have so many choices, which wasn't like that almost 10 years ago. And now we're looking into streaming. We're looking into TikTok. We're looking into these other areas where there's not good information. And that, you know, becomes how do you address this? How do you get this information to people so that they're not falling down these radicalizing holes? Because that inevitably is always the fight in heathenry is how do you intercept? Because that's 10 times easier than de-radicalization. Yep. So being a budding heathen in the 90s, and into the early 2000s, how did you discern what information was, I guess, palatable for consumption? Because I, I know a lot of that, that area in that time, it was predominantly racist stink bags that were basically running heathen or Norse spaces. I disagree with you. Because during that time, you had Diana Paxson running the troth. Mm-hmm. Um, you have people like Feldolf Gunderson, who's not a racist thing back, and he wrote a lot of really great stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I think one thing that you have to understand is the amount of information out there was tiny. Mm-hmm. Your choices in what to buy was very minuscule. Um, also, at the time, you know, you had a very few choices. You had what got through Llewellyn when Edward Thorson was a publication, an acquisitions editor. You had what the Troth was producing, and you had what White Marsh Theode was producing, which they're the ones who published We Are Our Deeds and all the Wodening's books. And I think that's a big part of it is there just wasn't much out there. I mean, you're one of the things that I actually really liked was, you know, at the time we actually had okay books from Llewellyn. I mean, they weren't the best, but we actually had, you know, uh, Feldhoff's Teutonic Magic and Teutonic Religion were really great books that were published in the late 90s. And so generally, I think at that point, that was definitely a hard space. It wasn't so much about discerning. It was about just finding Mm -hmm. because the resources were so slim that you're looking at maybe five or six books that were not just complete made up garbage rights of Odin's I'm looking at you, Ed Fitch. Which I also owned at some point because everyone did when they were a new heathen. It's just yep. what you found at Barnes and Noble. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah. In nineteen in in two thousand one, that's what there was at Barnes and Noble. Um, I remember being so excited when Diana's book came out, the first version of it, uh, Essential mm-hmm. Austria came out, and like here was a book I could actually give new people that I wasn't terrifyingly afraid. But even now, looking back at it, the first version's awful. It's got a lot of racist stuff in it. That at the time, I think one thing, another thing people have to understand about that era is that we were such a small community. We've probably quadrupled in size since then, if not more. And there was a lot of fear among everyone that we were such a small community that we had to tolerate the soft bigots. 
because otherwise we were going to be alone. And that was a predominant discussion through almost every organization. That wasn't just a, a troth thing or that was a, even, you know, we spent time. I remember our kindred used to spend time with a kindred that had members that were in the OR that, you know, in the AFA and we did it because this was the only other kindred we knew. Yeah. Uh, I know, I know for me, cause I became a heathen uh, officially around 06, 07 ish because Odin said, you're coming this way. Uh, up until that point, I was very resistant because the only areas that were active around me were blood and soil types. Like literally their pamphlets were taught, would talk about blood and soil. And I was like, well, if this is all that there's out there, I guess I'll just forego. And because unfortunately it's, there was like, yes. like the, the, the book problem is exactly what you, what I was seeing at the time too, because there was Edward Thorson and I don't even think the local pagan and new age bookstores to me stocked anything by Kveldov. And I'm really sore about that because I wanted to pick those up recently and I can't find them anywhere. Um, We'll talk about it afterwards. Let's talk about that afterwards. <laughs> Sweet. Um, but for the time, like, he has I, a new publisher, but we can talk about ooh, it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, yes. Let's, uh, <laughs> uh, so a lot of the stuff that I was interested in, I was also interested in a very esoterically inclined heathenry. And a lot of the people that I was finding online were, if you can't cite this chapter in verse, we can't have a conversation. And I'm like, right. So I'm a former Catholic. I get how this goes, but I didn't trade one set of canon law for another y'all. Like I'm having esoteric experiences with oath, and if you don't have the capacity for that, we can't talk. I'm sorry. So, like, even the the non racist, non douchebag types I'd find wouldn't have capacity because they wanted to like quote the Havamal at me. So, I think just from my small experience of heathenry since I became one in, uh, independently in 0607, we have come a very, very long way. And like like you said, kudos to Paxson. And at all for their publishing because there was nothing. Well, and I do think Diana leveraged her her fiction career to do that. Like Diana took a leap of faith there with you know because she was a well known fiction author at that point. She had finished the right. Mist of Avalon series, so Diana had basically leveraged her mainstream fantasy author fame to get that book out and then to get the second edition out which has been seriously cleaned up i will say that the new edition that came out i want to say in the past two years mm-hmm. has all of that removed good but good, I got the you know yeah i do too i, I will Ugh. say though with with all i got very lucky in that the first heathen i came in contact with outside of my my high school roommate's dad was ben wagoner you know i mean i you, you couldn't know, have got really luckier no, and so Ben and I, and you know, even to this day, you know, that's Ben and I have, they're my family, and you know, his his wife is my best friend, and I put them on their first date together, you know, I mean, it's, their child is my godson, I'm there at least once a week, I mean, that's my family, we travel together, but I don't know that I would be in this place if I hadn't, the first heathen I had encountered had been some, you know, racist dirtbag. And I've encountered a lot of them. Um, and it can be very hard because I, you know, my kindred sister is a woman of color. And that can be scary sometimes when we do host public events and meetups. 
it's a lot easier now that we're older and we don't tolerate things and we'll just tell people to leave straight out. But when we were younger, it was certainly harder, uh, especially living in Arkansas. You know, we're, I think we spent five or six years dodging this group out of about an hour north of us that is a legitimate white supremacist group. Like they ran a group called White Revolution and they had a kindred. Oh, and, fuck. um, yeah, we got, they actually got arrested at protesting and vandalizing the Holocaust Museum, like these kind of people. And we dodged them successfully for a very long time. And then he, he suddenly found Jesus and became a Christian identitarian, and we all celebrated. Beautiful. Yeah, it was great. I was really excited. Well, I'm not going to lie. It was really exciting when he became a Christian, and we did. that was one less thing we had to worry about here. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, because Arkansas is very much known for our issues. You know, we have places like Harrison. and um, they're not 100% wrong, but I think people ignore the racism that happens other places, too. Oh, I was going to say, like, the, the blood and soil types had their claws in pretty deep to the prison system till uh, independent heathenry and troth members started getting more active up here in Michigan. And the, the fact that the first couple of heathens I ran up ran into up here were blood and soil types really speaks to how effective they are at organizing. And Well, I think it has to do fight. with... Yeah, it's not a religious identity for them. It's a political identity. Exactly. Yes. Um, If you look at, so a really great way to kind of frame this for people who aren't familiar with the history of heathenry is Elsa Christensen. Elsa Christensen started arguably the first lasting heathen, uh, not really heathen, Odinist group in North America. Um, Elsa Christensen was a Nazi, and I'm not saying Nazi in terms of like, I'm trying to name call her. In World War II, Elsa Christensen was a Nazi um, and came to Canada and then eventually America and started the Odinist Fellowship. And, you know, it was very a very influential group because it was the first one and they had a rather large mailing list. And you can see even the change in Steve McNallan from the early editions of the Runestone to after he had had contact with Christensen. And the change in what was in the content of the runestone. I mean, you can track it. It's it's a little creepy. But Elsa Christensen, one of the very first things that she did after she moved to Florida was starting prison ministry. So the very first prison ministries of any kind of heathen or heathen adjacent thing were done by racist groups. And her groups were were basically a cover for talking about politicized stuff because if you I'm not going to tell you to read her magazine, The Odinist, because it's terrible, but I have read every issue. And there's very little religious discussion. It's almost all political discussion. Um, my personal favorite essay is like opining about how Star Wars is like the perfect representation of the dominance of the white race. Oh, joy. Yeah, it was terrible. But that's the things I did, I've done for heathen history is read through all this stuff so that you guys don't, so that that's actually kind of the motto of our podcast is we read the terrible things so you don't have to. <laughs> Thank you. Cause just that little snippet made me twitch. Yeah. yeah it really is bad. Like, I really appreciate um, your sacrifice. Seriously. I, yeah, but I mean, it really is that hold that they have in the prison system is a direct result of the fact that they were there first. Um, the hold that they have in general, whether we want to like it or not, the rebirth of this religion 
was dominated by white supremacists, anti-Semites for the first almost 100 years. And love or hate it, that is the fact. And a lot of people, when you tell them that, they don't want to hear it. A lot of heathens do not want to hear this. And a lot of people get mad at me when I I try to present these facts, um, especially when it comes to the runes. Oh, people get mad at my rune workshops when I do my inclusive rune workshops (laughs) because I tell them that everything that they have learned from their Llewellyn rune books comes from a racist source. Um, especially if it's stuff that comes from Edward Thorson, because Thorson studied with the Least Society. The Least Society was part of the Nazi occultist movements, uh, which came from Guido von Least, who was an anti-Semite and a German nationalist and a proto-Nazi, who also believed women were inferior. And it's it really kind of upsets people that I'm poking at their sacred cow, but you need to know this. People need to be aware you know, if you want to continue to use those rune meanings, you want to continue to use the stuff that he literally dreamed up sending a year in bed after cataract surgery, you do you, boo. But you need to know where it comes from. Yeah, these people are just mad that you're poking at their sacred cow because they're realizing it's not actually a cow, but a pile of shit. Yeah, well, it's the same thing when you start poking. You know, I also teach folk magic. And when you start teaching... You know, maybe the stuff that you think is Norse magic is actually just co-opted indigenous stuff from the Sami that Llewellyn is selling to a mass market. Mm. They get really mad about that, too. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm the guest of honor at Kiskadoon, which is a, a f- festival in Memphis next month. And that's two of the topics I'm going to be teaching. And I'm really hoping it goes over a little better there than it has at some of my previous events. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the truth is that... Um, it speaks so much to how far the community's come in the last 20 years, roughly. And I think any faith gets upset when you kind of poke at their foundations and show them some of the problematic origins of some of their beliefs. It's incumbent on pagans and heathens to overcome that, to really be honest with themselves about the problematic parts of the history of their faiths and then how to reconcile that going forward. I think that if we're going to be better than, and I'm going to use air quotes here just to keep people happy, if we're going to be better than some of the monotheistic faiths, we have to have that kind of openness. Forget that. If we're going to be better than the people who came before us, that's really (laughs) what it's about. I mean, I'm, I always say I want to, when I leave this, this world, I want to leave heathenry better than I found it. That's it. Uh, I think to be perfectly blunt, given where I've seen heathenries come from mission accomplished, just in the short tenure, you've been here. Yeah. Uh, like uh, the, I, I, I totally understand the, the wanting to be a, a better ancestor, you know, and leave something better for your descendants. I really do. In my own in my own rune workshop class, I have to like warn people. Like, part of the reason that I emphasize studying the rune poems on your own is because a lot of modern stuff is bunk or it's based on bullshit. Or people will be like, "Well, what about Tacitus? What about Tacitus?" I'm like, "Dude, he wasn't there. He's not a very good secondary source either." You're reading a polemic, <laughs> like you know, and. and a lot of the the remnants of what was really popular when I became a heathen and from before I became a heathen, it has been a a multi-decade process 
from a lot of different folks of working to either unlearn or just stop this garbage at the source from becoming prevalent again. And I really Sarah, don't it. don't make us use the blank rune on you. Oh, <laughs> I, okay. Do you guys know? Okay, so I've actually done a whole episode on the runes. Um, it's in editing right now. Uh, do you know why there's a blank rune that, that came about in um, the set from it's easier production um, cost, right? Yeah, it's because it's cheaper to produce a five by five plastic injected grid than a four by six. Yeah, and he had to create a bullshit reason for why there was a uh, blank one. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Blum. No, no, really, it's in case you lose one while you're on the road, so you have a quick replacement, <laughs> you can etch the missing rune in there. That's what I I mean, that also told. works. So um, you're telling me that the blank rune is the thanks capitalism rune? Basically. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. It is the, it's the thanks, it's the thanks Chinese uh, plastic injector machines rune. <laughs> so... Given your extensive history and the work that you do on your podcast with the, uh, I'm sorry, my brain is really scrambled, but the the history of heathens or heathen histories, um, you purposefully seek out documents and books that are problematic for this purpose to help enlighten readers on like who you should and should not read, or if you do read them, be a little bit more discerning. Um, I was curious if you would be willing to maybe give some pointers or some advice to individuals who with a less discerning eye, some things that they need to look out for while reading certain heathen texts. If it's something that you have not covered yet in your podcast. Like, what are key words or phrases or something that you would consider to be a red flag and be problematic? Well, I think the first thing is going to be look at who's publishing it and look at when it was published. I think that's number one. Obviously, something that is published, and then you have to think about why was it published. Uh, If something's published by a big mainstream pagan publisher like Llewellyn, then the primary reason that this is published is going to obviously be financial, right? They're trying to make money versus is this published by like a small independent pagan press or is this published by runestone publishing, which is, you know, the AFA's publishing arm. I think that's the most important thing because you have to think about, you know, even with the troth, you know, we, everything we publish, there's a reason we're publishing it, you know, and our, our mission, that's because our mission is education. Part of our mission is education. So that's why we're publishing this book or that book. It's because it is in education or service to the community. I think that's a big thing first. You know, if I see a book and I want to know, okay, who's publishing it, that's going to help me discern it first and foremost. Um, second, it's going to be, I'm going to look at the author and I'm going to look at what their affiliations are and their public affiliations. Uh, I think that makes a very huge, you know, if you can obviously see uh, Edward Thorson, I think is a great example. Edward Thorson, it, it, is he someone with a PhD in Germanic studies and knows a lot? Absolutely. Did he also study with the least society? Absolutely. And so sometimes just Googling that person and you can see he's starting to write some rather books that read just from their cover notes very right wing alt right uh stuff about gender and you know the kind of stuff that's very red flag 
beyond that, um, the word culture can be a very red flag word. Preserving the European, native European culture, anything that's like native or indigenous European, and they're not talking about like the Sami. Like if you pick a book about the Sami and they're talking about indigenous European culture, okay, cool. I'm down with that. If they're talking about heathenry and they immediately go into indigenous European culture, that's a red flag right there. Because what they're trying to do is equate heathenry to indigenous tribal culture of like indigenous American or indigenous African tribal culture, which there's no real, you can't do that. Like that, that just doesn't work because one is a continuous culture that has lasted, you know, one is a continuous closed culture. The other one is a culture that died out and is essentially people are trying to reconstruct anything that tries to purport that people are unequal based on things they cannot control. I think is another one. And you'll see sneaky language on that um, where they will try to bring up, you know, complementarianism. And for anyone who's not familiar with that is, uh, it's a Christian theology that bleeds over into a lot of right-wing religious beliefs where women and men are created to complement each other and they're different and they each have their own spheres. Um, that's how I was raised. So I know that one way too well. Um, and maybe that's why I spot that a lot in a lot of the more further right writings. And the other thing, most important thing is like everyone has a social media. I think the other thing is everyone at this point pretty much if you're writing a book and you're trying to promote it, they're going to have interviews. They're going to have blog posts. There's going to be press releases. Look at those. See who they're talking to. If they're being interviewed on Red Ice Radio and I'm going to drop someone who's fairly controversial in the heathen sphere, but I personally think it's a piece of trash. Wisdom of Odin. No, we obviously don't like the guy. Okay, he's a piece of trash. Um, Wisdom of Odin, you know, I, I, I would be very skeptical if they're being interviewed by the Wild Hunt or I would still be I would be less skeptical. There's still some people the Wild Hunt has interviewed and or had his columnists I'm skeptical of, but I would be less skeptical with a more mainstream thing. I think the biggest thing is, does the book try to divide people? The more the book tries to divide people, I think the scarier it is. And I also encourage people to read up about cult tactics. One of the issues that I'm seeing more and more, especially among the further right groups, is cult-like mentalities. And I think that is another way to kind of bring into that is definitely cults. Because if you look at, you know, there are certain groups that are starting to edge more and more into cult-like behaviors, especially when you have one very charismatic leader. That's why the trope, I like the trope. We believe leadership is like fish. After a while, it starts to stink and we throw it out. I serve a three-year term and then I might get, if I want to run again, I can get reelected or I can choose not to anymore. And we do that because we don't want a cult of personality or a single failure point. Yeah. And anyone who says they have all the answers, that's definitely a red flag. And I see that a lot with farther right writings where they are definitely the person who has the answers and right. no one else has any answers. I, I'm, I'm really glad you are all getting more into Twitch and TikTok because that's the area where I see a lot of that cult sort of one person's got all the answers mentality. So that needs to be broken up really at all costs because that's it's leading people down some really awful rabbit holes. 
And I'll be honest, Twitch has been hard for, or TikTok has been hard for me. TikTok has been the source of a lot of stress for me. Um, there have <laughs> been people on TikTok who have been very, have really put out some flat out untruthful things about mm-hmm. me. Um, things that have happened in the trove, in the, that the board has done that I can't speak about publicly. And it's irritating because people are saying, oh, well, you did this and you did that. And I'm like, well, that happened in executive session. I can't talk about it, but it's not true. But I can't give details as to why it's not true because uh, um, I'm very grateful we have a social media manager where I can now just go in and record my videos and they take care of all the comments <laughs> and all that nice. because it it did give me a lot of anxiety dealing with a lot of that and um you know, I'll I have anxiety, I have mental health issues. And so having someone to deal with that, because quite frankly, it's a lot and people it are is. really nasty on, on social media. And I tend to avoid it if I can. I really do tend to avoid social media for the most part, um, where I'm not in very small kind of contained areas with people I like and trust because I I lived through Usenet. I lived through bulletin boards. Uh, your alt Sarens. I lived through Ossature lore, which was like the nastiest bullet, heathen bulletin board on the planet. Oh, um, they were terrible. Like you were, when you were talking about, well, do you know this and this and this? It's never the Havamal. It was always some obscure book yeah. that like only three people have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. I've paid my dues in the trenches of the internet. I'm I'm done with that. I'm 44 years old. You know, I have had so many people compl- comment on my appearance, my looks, my weight, mm-hmm. my everything. When I did Heathen Talk, people would say I was stupid and then immediately comment when my ho- co-host, who's male, said the same thing. He was brilliant. You know, I- I've hit my limit as a woman, you know, and I'm already a steer. I'll be, you know, I've dealt with death threats in the past year. I steer the troth. Um, I think sometimes it's social media is so nasty that I've just kind of hit my limit on what I can deal with. I, I don't blame <laughs> you. I no, I don't blame you at all. I, I, when I wrote a blog post about how the gods are not white, I got literal death threats for it. I can only imagine the kind of shit you're getting on the regular. Yeah, I had credible. I've had to meet with the FBI so far. That's been fun. I've had credible death threats. Um, shit. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, what can I say? Um, yeah, and a part of that is being a woman in these spaces because I, I mean, people, there are people out there who are leaders of other racist groups who will flat out say women have no place in leadership. And I've been called by name and had people say, had certain leaders of certain groups call out me by name and said the truth's going to fail because they put a woman in charge. Ha ha jokes on you. We have more members than you. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of us is one of us has a booth at Parliament of World Religions and it ain't you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean at that point you just gotta let the community speak for itself and put up a very, very quiet and gentle middle finger to all those haters that are saying all that shit. Because I mean it, as a woman in general, this world is really, really, really hard to survive. As a woman in a heathen community, as large as this one is now, it's even scarier because of well, how much hate is out there. I did something as a woman and as a heathen that I don't know that anyone else has done. I very publicly came forward and told my abortion story. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, it's um, I sent you guys our link tree um, and it's in those links where I talked about my abortion story. And the reason I did is because the fir- my first day as president, Sarah the Troth, was the day that Roe versus Wade was overturned. And it was an incredibly horrible and emotional day for everyone. The Troth put out an incredibly strong statement on it. And I want to, you know, I want to, once again, Ben Kowalski Gray, because our communications director did an excellent job in writing that statement and getting it out very quickly. However, you know, I wanted to share my story because I wanted to show how incredibly unremarkable my abortion story was. Right. I had an abortion. There's nothing really special about it. There's nothing really interesting about it. The actual abortion. What was special and interesting, I guess, was just the fact that I, sh- I shared my story. Um, and I talked about how ethically in heathenry, the truth stance is that there is nothing in heathenry that says abortion should be restricted or that it's wrong. And now, you know, I live in one of the states where, you know, our right has been taken away. Um, our rights, so many of our rights have been taken away in Arkansas now. And it's scary. And that's why I shared my story. That's why I continue to share things like that, because as a as a heathen, I think it's important that we share these stories and demystify abortion, demystify things like these topics that are so taboo. And coming from someone whose parents were abortion protesters, it was a very hard thing to write. I think I sent like six different drafts to my best friend before I came with the last one to put in Aduna because I really wanted to make sure I did it right. And I told my story in a way that other people could connect with, even if they've never had an abortion, because the fact is my pregnancy came about as a result of the most stupid way, antibiotics and birth control. And I was on, I was on chemotherapy at the time. So I didn't have a lot of choices. Gotcha. But that's the thing, like, I'm very open, and I think it it can frighten people sometimes because I am a recovered addict. I am, you know, I've had an abortion. I am, as a woman, I'm way too open for some people, but I genuinely believe that I am, I am afforded that opportunity. I don't have children. I don't have to worry about them. Um, my husband and I have firm get the hell out of the country plans just in case. <laughs> and well, I mean, when your name's on all the paperwork for a, for a heathen organization, you oh, have yeah. to have yeah. them. Oh, yeah. um, and so I have used that to be loud and very unashamedly open about these things that can be taboo and controversial. In a, you know, if I can help one other woman or non-binary person or trans man who's had to face this, then I'm happy. And that's how you're a real warrior, fucking haters. I'm sorry. Yep. <laughs> but please don't send me to Valhalla. I really don't want to go. No, I don't either. <laughs> no, <legit. laughs> no, Sam. Don't. Sam, I'm good. Don't want to go there. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm good, guys. Thanks. Um, yeah, yeah, I fought my battles it. here. Yeah. I don't want to do that again. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the other thing is I'm not someone who is like God touched or. That's the other thing I write a lot about. I'm not someone who's God touched or has had any particularly like startling divine experiences. I am 
a average run of the mill heathen. There is nothing remarkable about me spiritually. I am, you know, I do mysticism, but it's not really heathen related. It's dirt witchery. <laughs> it's folk magic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, everything about it, I'm pretty boring and mundane. I'm not anyone special. And that's something else I like to, you know, I have an essay on my on my personal site called When the God Phone Doesn't Ring. Because so many people talk about, oh, well, Odin told me this, or Loki told me that, or Freya, I had this great experience. And I'm like, hi, I've been here for 20 years. Um, and that brings me into a topic that maybe you guys can kind of discuss with me. Competitive spirituality. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I tend to avoid all of that because it's to me it, and especially a convocation and i know you sarah you said that convocation this year was really excellent and really great but there have been times where i have experienced like very debasing spiritual competition at convocation and i just kind of like cringe and shake my head and just like nope out of the conversation and walk away especially because i'm in like this is like the dumbest thing I think in spiritual and pagan communities is, you know, we, we talk about the fact that we, we want to elevate women and, you know, celebrate women and do all this stuff, but in no offense to you guys, but if you look at a lot of the leaders in pagan communities, they're all men or a good portion of them are men where a very small portion are women. And oftentimes whenever I see a panel where it is, you know, mixed on the the panel, the men will overtalk the women on the panel or even the trans women or trans men. And it's, it's this weird innate kind of thing that's built in us to where even I find myself doing it to where if I'm getting talked over, I'll just shut up and stop talking. And at this point, I don't even talk back anymore. I just walk away from the fucking conversation because clearly you do not give a shit about what I have to say. So I'm not even going to listen to what you're saying. And that that's where I come in because no matter how loudly I talk, my words will never be heard because either I'm speaking over somebody else in the conversation or I'm being overly emotional and I need to go sit down and calm down. So I just gently remove myself from that and go fume in the corner and pretend like their hair is on fire that's absolutely you know that's absolutely true and i think for me having grown up in you know baptist independent fundamentalist baptist where women aren't allowed to speak in church but yet women are the women people who keep everything going in church and it's very much the same thing yeah, they're the um, ones it was actually, that run the bake yeah. sales. They do the fundraisers. They do the the yard sales. They do they run the church. Yeah, but they aren't allowed to speak. As I will say, this it was very funny. We, the communications team of the truth. We were getting together to discuss what we were going to do for uh, Women's History Month, and um, I was talking to our team, which is predominantly women. And we're like, okay, are you the, f-? and one of them said, are you the first female steer the troth has had? And I'm like, no. And I start listing off, you know, Prudence Priest, Diana Paxson, Patty LaFile. Um, we do have another person who was also steer, but we are not allowed to mention because they have converted to Christianity and sent us letters that they would not like to be mentioned again. 
you know, we've had a lot of females. In fact, this, you know, I would argue that the person who rescued the troth after the implosion of the initial founders being discovered, they were members of Temple of Set. And keep in mind, this was in the 80s during the Satanic Panic. Prudence Priest was the woman who kept the troth together after that happened. You know, I will say that has been one of the few really good things about the troth, even during the Big Ten era is that we've always had pretty equal representation and women have been fairly respected in their positions. However, at the same time, it does seem a little weird to try to have a conversation about inclusion. You know, when I first got on the board of directors, I was the only woman. And it was a really weird conversation, me and a bunch of white guys trying to have a conversation about inclusion was weird and a little uncomfortable. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. And even now, I'll be honest, the people who complain in the direction the truth is moving to, you know, to me, as I said, inclusive heathenry inclusion is a C grade. Like, that's the bare minimum. We should be working towards being radically pro-queer, pro-black, pro, you know, pro-anti- pro-anti-racist if that makes <laughs> that's a little too much together but you know mm-hmm. being radically anti-racist radically you know in that direction and the people who get mad about it are always men it's never women it's never queer people it's never trans people it's always men who are getting mad about the direction that the tros has started to move into i think uh- yeah, I mean that's uh, honestly like part of the part of the reason that I, I finally joined the troth was because of the more radical direction that the troth is taking. Uh, the fact that you folks uh, decided that the Loki ban was over and that there's actually space in the troth for Jotun worshippers is a big, big deal to me. The Loki ban was so messed up because it was never it never actually happened mm-hmm. and. This is a great discussion about communication, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Loki ban was essentially a rumor that became policy. Uh. So essentially you have one group that is hosting one pros move, right? Mm-hmm. And because a lot of those people are predominantly Theotish, who are very anti Loki, and the and this is in the early this is in the late two thousands, so around two thousand eight, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, suddenly that became policy that Loki, you couldn't hail Loki at Troth event. And if you go through and like multiple people have gone through and read through the policies and the notes and the minutes, nowhere in any of the official minutes for the read, the board of directors, is it there? It's just a matter of people took it. All it took was one person with some small bit of authority to take a rumor as fact, and all of a sudden now, this is happening. And that's exactly how the Loki ban came about. Holy it was shit. never actually a policy. And it was easy to reverse because it was never in place in the first place. Oh, that chaps my ass. Uh, me too. Um, as someone who has no issues with Loki at all, um, you know, it, it definitely was ridiculous. And I think that's what everyone came to the conclusion about. And as far as people who worship the Jotnar or anything outside of, you know, the Aesir and the Vanir, I think one of the things people have to understand, the troth, we're not a church. 
we don't dictate what you do. Um, We dictate what happens at Troth events and the policies we have in place right now are generally there to keep Griff, right? They're there to make sure that we don't have physical altercations, which have happened at Troth Boot. Not for several years, but, you know, we did almost have two members, both of whom were claiming to Odin's wife, get into a fist fight right after Grand Sumble one year. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, one of them being Freya Aslan, who, if you've never heard someone speak Cockney with a Dutch accent, it's one of the weirdest experiences of your life. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Although I do I know paper in my dicks. I do have to say the uh, the whole Loki ban is very Loki, and how it came yeah. to be because it, it was all like hearsay, and then he's like, "Oh, all right, let's make it policy." That's wild. But right. yeah. Mm. But, you know, we're paying shield for that. Loki is actually one of the two required rituals now we have at Troth Mute. Um, That's awesome. Which is for exactly the next 10 why years. He, yeah, which is exactly yeah. why he made himself banned. <laughs> so for 10 years, we do we have a, a required Loki bloat now at, at uh, Troth Mute. In addition to, of course, we have our Aduna bloat that we do every year because Aduna is our patron. So that is, yeah, that's, and that's the thing, like, so many things that, so many things I hear about the Troth are not true, and that, that kind of comes into it. So the Loki, the Loki ban is such a, a encapsulation of so many things I hear about the Troth that are just blatantly not true. The Loki ban is, like, the best, like, the best example. God, that's irritating. I I stayed out of the Troth for so long because... I had heard from people that that was official policy. And I was like, well, I'm very deeply tied to him and his children. If they aren't welcome, how can I join his organization? Oh, that is so fucking irritating. It is. And it's so messed up. I mean, they rescinded it, but there was never, it never actually was voted on. It just was something that people just took as truth when it wasn't. And that's that once again, I will say, and I'm going to say this, and this is a pagan organization critique, although I can speak as someone who's certainly in charge of the troth, the troth is as guilty as everyone else. One of our issues of nonprofits, of all pagan nonprofits, is a lack of professionalization. Yep. And that's one of the, one of the things the troth is, that's our growing pain right now is professionalization. And we're doing really well. I'm very proud of what the organization has done over the past year. But if we had had that professionalization, if we'd had properly categorized minutes that were easily searchable, it would have been really easy to figure this out in like five minutes, what was actually going on. Instead, we didn't. And that's how this happened. And it it really does come down to professionalization. That's why now when we, you know, when we had new people join the board last year and this year, you know, in this new coming election we're having, we're going to, you know, part of that is orientation. It's training, like actual external training on how to be a board member. It's every, it's making all of our program leaders go through DEI training. Now there's mandated quarterly training for all of our program leaders. I meet one-on-one quarterly with all of our volunteer leaders, you know, just because we're a hundred percent volunteer led organization doesn't mean we can't behave with professionalism and treat our members valued like they should be. That's a problem that you see in a lot of not just uh, pagan organizations, but nonprofits in general. Yeah. 
you know, that, that lack of continuity and professionalism, it adds up after a while. It'll destroy an organization really fast. And I, you know, as someone who works in tech and I'm a computer programmer, um, I have been in situations where we've been dependent on legacy systems where one or two people knew how to run them. And in fact, I used to work for the Arkansas Department of Human Services and they're responsible for, um, any kind of payments like food stamps, WIC, any of that, which is great <laughs> until the one guy who's 72 years old who knows how to run that system gets hit by a car. And then what do you do? We were in such a bad situation where no one really knew how the whole system worked. And it was three days before all those payments went out. Yet. So that's why the other thing I'm very... I'm very, very, very insistent on is redundancy. Like I want to make sure we have continuity for every single position. Everyone, you know, right now, if something were to happen to me, I have full faith that our associate steer could pick everything up because I've left notes. I've left receipts. I mean, everything that he would need to know, all we'd have to do is log into my mailbox and he would have everything. Um, and I think that's incredibly important to have that legacy and continuity in our pagan organizations, and especially when you're not dependent on one person who's just going to be the leader indefinitely. And we really do see that in other organizations who have no plan. And, you know, the troth has blown up several times. I don't want, you know, the last thing I want is to someone to get mad, take their ball, go home, or pass away or whatever. And we are left clueless on how to continue with that position. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that I am, uh, the, the small yeah. nonprofit I'm part of is is working on ourselves, even within our small group. And I mean, we're we're a exceptionally small nonprofit, uh, Crossing Hedgerows Sanctuary and Farm out in Belleville. And even for us, it's like even for us, it's a question of how do we build redundancies into the uh, into the system so that it's not all on one person. How do we build a professional grade? system even though we are all volunteers i totally i from the inside i get it <laughs> so i want to everybody who is working on a nonprofit, if you're involved with one um, i want to highly encourage you guys there's a website called nonprofitready.org. i have no affiliation with this nothing to do with it except for the fact that it is an incredibly incredible resource for free nonprofit training and it has um that's where we get a lot of our training for our new board members but it has training on every aspect from social media, marketing, finance, board member. I mean, anything you could think of on nonprofit, they have. And so um, I think it's a very it's a really great resource to be able to pick up that training if you are new to the nonprofit space. And that's what I did. Honestly, before I ran for steer, I went through that. I went through some other free training. I basically spent about 100 hours on training making sure that I was going to have the skills in addition to, you know, previous academic study, because I have a hybrid computer science business degree. Um, I really went in and made sure that I was going to have the skills to treat this like a professional experience. And I want people to walk away. You know, if you join the troth, I want you to feel like you are getting what you paid for. I mean, even though it's, you know, not a huge fee i do want people to feel like they are getting what they paid for and that's why we're also constantly expanding you know we added discord this year we added some other things our program offerings have expanded you know we launched our heathen esoteric program 
which is a collegiate level esoteric studies program. And um, in addition, we also have programs like Heathens in Recovery, um, which is a nine step recovery program for people with addiction and mental illness. Um, and I'm very that that program's kind of one of my babies. Um, I was part of the group that helped create that. And it's a phenomenal way for people to have support, especially um, for me. I was involved with 12 step programs and they did nothing for me. And yeah, I the, got asked way too often, what church do you go to? Would you like to come to mine? Right. Yeah. The the AA meetings that are out there are definitely heavily handed on one side. Um, I, I do want to get more into that recovery program because yeah. it, it sounds amazing. But I do want to comment on one thing. The, the training that you're implementing within the trough is amazing because not only... I mean, they are just volunteers, but they're also gaining experience that they can then take out into the real world. So it's not just a faith-based organization. It's a faith-based organization elevated and supported by an education into something that they can then use as here on my resume. I was part of the trust for X amount of years. I was in this position for X amount of years. This were my responsibilities. This is what I did. You know, you're helping to not only build people within the faith, but also build them out in the world as well. And that's here are these certifications I got because these classes have certifications. And that's the thing. Like, I want to enhance these people. I want, you know, I want you to be able to take this away and do more. Um, I want also you to be able to take this and start your own local communities. I mean, we're not a church. I, but we're a resource, we're educational, and that's what I want you to do. We want to give people the power to create their own local communities. That's what this is about, because you know, I that way these local communities can dictate for themselves what is best for their location, their faith, their people, and it's not something that's being dictated from on high. Right, and I, I think that would actually help uh, pagan communities to become stronger footholds within their own communities because if you look at it there are a lot of like christian groups and christian volunteers and christian schools that kind of have all these certifications to them that give them a little bit of clout when they get out into the world but if you say oh i've been a pagan for 15 years most people look at you and be like okay well you're talking to things in your brain whatever but if you do these things and actually get the certifications and you do the work for the organization that is a reputable organization that is a huge thing to put on your resume you know and And i think more pagan spaces could learn from that and that's one of the reasons also we're going to parliament of world religions because yes we really want to raise the raise the bar on what is a pagan organization what is the truth um Mm -hmm. i want you know one of the things that we struggle with and i used to be a reporter so i get it it bleeds it leads right Uh, Car crash journalism is kind of normal now, Um, is trying to get coverage for anything involving heathenry that isn't look at this racist who burned down a church or got arrested or whatever. So one of the other things that, you know, my goal is I'll be, you know, and I'm, I'm open about this is making sure that we get to go and meet religion reporters, networking. Um, I'm, I mean, the troth has, is sending all of our department heads to parliament and world religions for professional development. Like, I don't expect them to do anything but come and do professional development because that's what they're there for. 
I, you know, I am there and our associate steer is there to work the booth. And, you know, but my department heads, I want them there. You know, I'm finding opportunities for professional development for all of them. I find opportunities for training certifications, whatever they need. You know, I want to give them every tool that I can to make them better at their job, more efficient at their job. And, you know, I believe in what's called top down failure. The inevitability is, is if someone below me fails, what could I have done to prevent it? And ultimately, it's my responsibility as steer. It is my responsibility as steer to make sure these things run appropriately. And I take it quite personally sometimes because I want, you know, this is, we take an oath. When you join, when you become an officer of the truth, you take an oath. And that oath is very serious and I take it incredibly seriously. And so that's all I'm trying to do, I guess, is just live up to that oath I took when I became steer. Well, um, kind of transitioning back into the... Yeah the the steps um but i I 100% agree with you i think the way that you're taking it and the work that you're putting in is amazing and i really hope that other groups pagan umbrella groups i guess because there's too many to name at this point uh, will follow your lead and take the same steps because we need that sort of representation in the world yes we need and i think I think I will say to that, a lot of times there's a really hard time with a mentality shift now, especially for those of us who've been in the pagan community for a long time. We are so used to having to be little bootstrappy kitchen table organizations. Um, A lot of times it's hard for me to get my brain around the fact that we're not 200 members anymore, that we're well over a thousand members. And sometimes that mentality shift for pagan organizations, I think, can be very hard. To try to shift from, you know, where we were 10, 15 years ago to where we are now, it can be really hard to suddenly realize, hey, this is like a major organization. This isn't just a, you know, tiny little club. Right. (laughs) It's not just me and Marie down the street, you know, picking chamomile off of the sidewalk. Yes. I'm really interested in this. this program that you helped initiate, can you talk more about that? What brought it around? What growing pains you might have experienced uh, building it to help? Uh, I don't want to call it AA because it's not really that, it's but it's called, kind of that. Well, it's called Heathens in Recovery. And we are a completely independent um, peer support group, as well. I, I think the best way to refer to it is a peer support group. For people with mental health and addiction. Um, it started in 2020. There's been a Heathens in Recovery like Facebook group for a long time. That's just basically been like a, a place for people who have issues to talk. But it's never been like any kind of formalized program. It's always just been kind of this little chat group. 2020 rolls around and we have virtual choice moot because of the, the pandemic. And during that at one of the fire circles, a bunch of us start talking about like recovery and how it related back to Winifred Hodge-Rose's soul lore writing, which for those of you who are not familiar, her writing is at heathensoullore.net. She also has several books. It's so good. (laughs) And um, she is going to be doing some uh, soul lore talks that we're going to be streaming coming up in the next few months. I've got to work on getting those scheduled, but we started talking about that and it started between me and Michael, um, who is the current coordinator for Heathens of Recovery and a few other people. 
And we just started saying about a month after trust me, we just started having weekly zoom meetings and they literally just literally the first few of them, we had no idea what we were doing. And they gradually evolved into a format um, where we have an opening prayer. Um, we try to create a sacred space for people to come into these weekly kind of support meetings. In addition, um, I am working on writing a book. Uh, part of that has been finishing the steps, which I just finished last month. So with that, I'm hoping to finish up the book in the next few months in between everything else I have to do. Because what sleep, right? Sleep is for useless. Um, but the idea is, you know, we have these nine steps and I will, if you don't mind, I can share them very briefly. Please do. Please. Yes, okay. Please. So it's a three phase program. Uh, it's called the path of eager still a journey of recovery. So phase one is preparation. Step one, we acknowledge that our thoughts and behaviors have become a problem and we choose of our own free will to change ourselves and find healing. Step two, we place ourselves within a supportive community and establish at least one close relationship with ourselves about the nature of our problem and the deep hurts influencing our thoughts and acts. We work within our community, our friends, and the best resources we can find to create a plan of action for healing. Step five, we courageously and diligently work our plan of action, accepting help from our community, friends, and valuable resources with humility. Step six, we make every effort possible to make amends with those we have hurt and to also make amends with ourselves. Finally, phase three is maintenance. Step seven, we endeavor to check in regularly with ourselves, addressing new problems as they come up. Step eight, we strengthened our spiritual path and made time for regular practice and study. And finally, step nine, we give back to the community and involve ourselves in service to others, especially helping those who are working the path to recovery. So the idea is that it needs to be a program that can work in conjunction with other things, because it is a broad thing. We're not just AA. We're not just alcohol or food or drugs or narcotics. We are not. We also work with people who have mental health disorders. Um, so your plan of recovery and plan of healing is going to look very different for everyone. But the idea is we want to encourage people to use the best scientifically available resources and recovery, whether that's therapy, going into a treatment program, going to a inpatient, outpatient, whatever. That is your plan of recovery and everyone's is going to look different. These steps took months on us to work on. These were worked on collaboratively by everyone who was currently participating in HIR at the time. And part the amends part is very important because in heathenry, you don't just say you're sorry. You know, part of actually fix, you know, being in the wrong and fixing is making shilt, is making up and making someone whole for what you have done. And part of that's also making shield to yourself, which is absolutely the hardest part. That is the hardest step right there, is making shield to yourself. But we really wanted something that would be applicable across a lot of things, but still very helpful. And because we're not here, none of us are like, you know, psychiatrists, therapists, whatever. We really are here to try to address the spiritual component. And we have had several, we've had a clergy member who comes regularly to our meetings to help. So we have kind of that chaplain, essentially, who can come into our meetings. 
But the idea is with recovery, um, it very much is a three-legged stool, right? You're physical, you're mental, and you're spiritual. And we're here for the spiritual because so many other programs do a great job, you know, and I have been in, you know, I have been in an intensive outpatient. I've been inpatient. Um, I am um, sober from stimulants, non-prescriptive stimulants for, um, in fact, my sobriety is old enough to drink now. So that's a fun story. I like to say that. Congratulations. That's awesome. It confuses people. But I also have an eating disorder. um, And I have been been both inpatient and outpatient intensive for that. And those programs were great for addressing my mental and my physical. But their understanding of religion and spirituality outside of a very monotheistic worldview is almost nil. Mm Mm-hmm. And I went to some of the AA meetings and some of the OA and NA meetings that were the good without God meetings, the atheist meetings, right? Um, And they were okay, but they still were very hooked in this monotheistic worldview. Mm -hmm. So then I went to Pagans in Recovery and Spiral Steps. And those are great, but those are very much a Wiccan worldview, and there was, and the only things out there that were produced for heathens were racist, racist, bigoted things. So NHIR has become so important because it really is the only inclusive heathen program out there now. I'm very grateful that we have this. I'm very grateful that it's something that the Troth sponsors, but it's not a Troth exclusive thing. Anyone is welcome. And if you are interested, you can go, you can email recovery at the trust.org and we can get you hooked up with a Facebook group, the mailing list, um, and all that information so that you can. We do have meetings on Sundays and then probably starting next month, we're going to add a Thursday evening U.S. time. Next month being April, because I'm not sure when this will actually air. Um, <laughs> in April, we're going to try to start adding a Thursday night meeting as well. What an amazing resource, though. Yeah, no kidding. That that's beautiful. I love it. it really, yeah. Is. And we do. We meet on Zoom, so that also helps as well. It helps people connect um, mm-hmm. that don't have meetings where they are. And I've tried to start local meetings here, and the local, our local, like twelve-step house, will not allow us to meet because we're a pagan. And so it's been really hard because, like, we really have a need for like a local meeting here. Like, we really have a need, and trying to find a place that will allow us to meet has been almost impossible we're we're and uh we were looking at the library and then they closed the main library is being closed for a year to remodel so we're kind of like well i don't know what we're gonna do <laughs> yeah. um but addiction is a huge thing in heathenry and we don't talk about it and alcohol is so normalized especially at heathen events oh yeah to the point that mm-hmm. Troth this year is going to be we're having it at a campground that is normally no alcohol. We got a waiver to be able to have it for rituals and people are upset because they're not going to be able to like just drink. And I'm like, you know, my kindred is sober for the most part. We actually really don't drink that much. Yeah. Same. For the most and part. yeah. And so having, you know, for, uh, for me having like a completely sober bloat or stumble is not a big deal, but a lot of people mm-hmm. are very much are, tie alcohol to heathenry and to me if your heathenry does not include sober heathenry it's not inclusive 
Ooh, that'll piss somebody off if you say that too. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I, I hope it does. As <laughs> so, I look at paganism a lot as something that celebrates excess in a way to where, you know, a lot of people seek out different branches of paganism because obviously something is missing in their life or they feel restricted or controlled and they look at paganism and they say, wow, I can be totally free and myself and I can do all these wonderful things. And to somebody who is a recovering addict, that can be terrifying to have that level of freedom like thrown at them and have them go, I'm going to relapse. I can't deal with this. So having and developing more um, programs that are in the same vein and also encouraging gatherings that are like Sarenth and mine's and yours uh, celebrations to where they're not necessarily dry, but these alternates are used sparingly or just for offerings, I think is kind of important for people who are struggling from that. If you don't mind me talking about our little kindred. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it, well, so, it's really your kindred. I'm just a member. <laughs> no, no, it's it's ours. Mimis Brunner kindred, uh, we do have some folks who are 100% dry. And so like, at least for us, like from the inception it wasn't a controversy to have apple juice alongside mead as offerings. Uh, apple juice alongside mead as uh, one of the special drinks for an evening. It, or if the I, person could handle it, they would just smell the mead offering and pass it to the next person. If we were sharing a horn, for example, my wife doesn't drink like neither does my <laughs> husband. So you know, it would be really dickish of me to be like, well, you know, you got, you got to do this. Like, no, no, right. You got to, you got to drink it to get the blessing. Like, no, no, no you don't. No. So, I mean, you just pass two horns. We jokingly call it leaded and unleaded. I mean, it's, it's easy. Yep. Yep. Let it it really, it's really it. that easy to be inclusive. Like that's all you gotta fucking do is just, gosh, take yeah. care of people's needs. It's it's like so you should weird. be living in reciprocity with each other. God. What? No, not in this country. As um, a human, please. I will. You talked about though talking about this in excess and paganism, but one of the reasons I became heathen and stayed heathen was the opposite was because the Havamal teaches moderation because heathenry to me is not about the individual, but it's about the community. And I found that and fell in love with that. And I didn't necessarily have this divine calling. I had a community calling. And to me as an addict, addicts are selfish. I mean, we are. And having this completely changed who I am. In addition to, there was a lot of recovery out of Christianity in that regard. And so to me, I think that a lot of people come into heathenry with that idea and you could, and their spiritually mature spirituality matures. Then they start to see the community and to, to circle back to where we are earlier with TikTok, I think that's one of the reasons I can't watch TikTok because I just see these, these people and their entire spirituality is so me focused and it, 
it triggers things in me from my own childhood because especially very hardcore evangelical Christianity is very much about competitive spirituality. It's very much about your own relationship with Jesus and who can have the best walk with Jesus and quiet time and all this stuff. I'm more fucking humble than you are. uh, Who's humble. Yeah. Right. Ray Stevens captured it so perfectly in the Mississippi Squirrel Revival um, with Sister Bertha better Sister Bertha better than you. Um, and I call um, I call some heathens uh, sis, uh, Brother Sven better than you or Sister Helga better than you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, when I ran for steer and I was very open about the fact, you know, I've, I don't have these divine connections and I'm not someone who's very woo. And the people who told me, well, you shouldn't be running a heathen organization. Oh, fuck that. Know? And it's the same thing, though, with, like, TikTok. And I see these people who are very, their paganism, their Norse paganism is very kind of egocentric and self-centered. And I'm like, and I'm not, like, don't take me as someone who's just super enlightened or anything. But I am not going to go out and promote heathenry as being all about me. No. And do you mind if I... If I... I was hoping we'd be able to circle back to this because the competitive spirituality of this as somebody who is fucking head deep in woo. Yes. Chaps my fucking ass because on the one hand, like I am a heathen spirit worker. It's a fucking job. It's a job. Mm -hmm. It is not something I'm like, I, and I've seen people use it this way and it, it pisses me off and drives me crazy. This is not a fucking club. To make you feel good about yourself. And it's also not a club to hit other people with. This is a fucking job. You do this for community. And that community. This is a vocation. Exactly. Exactly that. And I. I. With all the shit that I have going on. I am so happy that you are in the position you are. And especially that you are. And I mean this with all due respect. Because I call my wife this as well. You're a fucking brick. That is excellent because your head isn't in the fucking clouds. Because sometimes when the gods are that active, it is really hard to say, well, you know, I need to maintain the level head to, in order to lead this organization in a way that is, you know, level headed. So we don't just run off into the blue hill or hillerlands and lose focus on the here and the now. Um, and I, I say this as somebody that is, like I said, ass deep in esoteric work. Uh, oh, yeah. I will, as soon as I qualify, because I joined this la- this year, I will probably be signing up for the esoteric uh, track through the trough. Just because I've been go doing ahead this and, since 06, go 07. Ahead and get your Go ahead and get your uh, other stuff completed then before then so that you can do that when you hit your year. Will do. But just because I've been doing this since 06 or 07 doesn't mean that I want shit to learn. Doesn't mean that yeah. I know it all. And I'm actually teaching that, in that too. Oh, I'm cool. actually teaching a, a, a unit in that on folk magic. Oh, oh, ooh. <laughs> ooh. Well, I, I like this discussion too because we've said before that it's not just the people that have their heads in woo that are important to heathenry that are important to paganism, that are important to organizations. You have something to offer just who you are and what your talents are. You have things to offer to the community, to organizations. You 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 have something. You don't have to be I, all out there, woo, making awesome TikToks or 
uh, faking awesome TikToks about how amazing <laughs> your your experiences are. No, there's there's simple things of organization and reaching out to others and and just there's so much that can be done no matter where you're at on your path. And truthfully, we do need somebody to rein all of us in that are in the woo because we'll run off into the woods for no fucking reason and we need somebody to steer the cart. Someone has to tell you danger, Cliff. Yeah, yes. No, you are absolutely (laughs) very qualified to be the leader of the trough. (laughs) That's a true story from the trough we had in Oklahoma where they were doing a, they're actually doing a, a safe and um, we were having to like oh. make sure people didn't go near the cliffside because uh, there was a cliff, like a legit cliff oh, shit. Um, by the camp where we were, the campground was. Um, are calling you, you think, yeah, don't go that way. <laughs> no, not that way. I think one of the most like important things is everyone, like, I'll be honest with you. You want to know th- as much as I love our woo people and I love everyone else, the troth would not operate if we didn't have our corporate secretary, our corporate, re- our corporate treasurer, Mary Antonelli. I love you. You literally make the world go round in our organization. You are the best things that slice bread, but she's the one who's responsible to file our corporate paperwork, our IRS paperwork. Like, you know, she is the person who answer who like sorts our mail and sends it out to whoever it needs to go to people who, you know, Piper Perry and who handles all of our incoming mail, like, you know, all of our incoming emails and answers those questions um, and answers the inquiries that come in on Facebook, Heather that hands- handles our social media scheduling. I mean, there's literally, those are the people who make the troth run. And I, you know, the last big blow up inside the troth was caused by esoteric things, um, specifically people in leadership who had been told through their workings with a God that the troth was under spiritual attack. And this became some sort of secret esoteric society. And it caused a massive blow up because there was a secret. It wasn't so much the esoteric work. It was because they were keeping it a secret. And that's the thing. If, I genuinely believe the troth was under threat from some sort of spiritual thing was advised by such by someone I trust. I would not have, I would communicate that with the read and we would find a way to communicate it to the membership because I don't like secrets because number one, I'm a recovering addict and you're only as sick as your secrets. And number two, I think everyone has a right to know because everyone is every single one of us paid our membership. You know, we're all in my opinion on equal footing here. And that's, I think that's one of the things, you know, I also am someone who I don't look for zebras if I hear hoofbeats. I look for the horses first. But I think I'm learning as I get older and I spend more time with people um, is that everyone has their gift. We just glamorize two of them in heathenry, woo and academics. Yep. The fact of the matter is there are also people whose gifts are just logistics. There are people whose gifts are editing oh i mean we would probably die without those people who couldn't edit down our writers you know people whose gifts are so many different things and that's why the other thing that we've done in the troth uh, since i've come in last year when i was communications director is we've added more awards that recognize more than just that 
we actually have an award called the Diane Lorac Ross Award, and it's the Unsung Hero Volunteer Award. It's basically an award that we give out to the person who is doing the work, who is putting in the work, but it may go unnoticed, right? Uh, the person cool. who's answering the mail. Um, last year, it was given to um, Crystal Radcliffe, who runs every two Saturday, gives up two whole, almost whole days of her month to do our Heathen Essentials study group. And these are great. This is another thing the Troth offers that is you don't have to be a Troth member. Our Heathen Essentials programs open to everyone. And our study groups are a Zoom twice a month on Saturdays. It's a four-hour thing. You can drop in. And she does this every, you know, without complaint, every, you know, Saturday, every other Saturday. And so she, we gave her that award because that's a huge sacrifice for not just the community, but for heathenry in general, because there's a lot of people there that aren't troth members. Yeah, that's, that's a we, lot of work, too. You know, we have a member, you know, we have five basically big awards we give out now. Uh, we have, you know, we do have one for research and scholarship. And I think that's important to recognize people who are moving heathenry forward outside of the old kind of Victorian scholarship that we were depending on. And then we also have the, you know, we have our Rod Landreth Award, which is about promoting inclusive heathenry. You know, we have our Volunteer of the Year Award, but we really wanted to have awards that recognize people that weren't being recognized. Because I think that that's super important. And I know how that feels to be the person who feels like you're trying to hold everything together and not it goes unnoticed. And that's, you know, that's the other thing, you know. Our volunteers, you know, we recognize them on their significant anniversaries. We give out cool swag. I designed it so I can say that. <laughs> That's awesome. I, really I, I just really, I believe in showing people their appreciation and I do everything I can to do that. Well, I mean, this, I, is, this is about, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, well, I was just going to say I had the random really dumb thought earlier when you were speaking about this that you are the representation of the heathen middle class within the troth (laughs) probably makes up about 90 percent of your members um yeah and that's and that's why i think you are well suited to this position um and you're doing i just yeah, I just want people to like, I just literally want to leave the organization better than I found it. And I want, you know, I have a godson who's 12. I don't have children myself. But I have a godson who's 12. He is a little foresman. He's adorable. He's currently all about communism, but that's another story um, because he's 12. He read the communist manifesto and it's been an, it's an experience. Um, but I want him. <laughs> that's awesome. I want him to grow up. And have an organization that's still just as thriving at 50 that it is at 35. Yeah, you know, that's that's the like legacy that. there. You know, that's the legacy. You know, we're getting into third and fourth generation heathens now. Yeah, what are we giving them? Wild. So much of, of your work, both in terms of the trough and in terms of your personal work that I've, I've seen, I don't know if over the years myself, has been about community and it shows through. And how how much a better of a gift can you give to the next generation than by being a better ancestor than those who came before you? I mean, that's really what I'm seeing here is the set of better ancestors who are making 
improvements to the community that has gotten them through an amazing amount of hard and good times. And that has contributed to the well-being of countless people across this world. I'm, I am very happy to hear that so many of these quality of life updates are coming through now because it was needed sorely. And the way that it's coming through is also to me really important, especially in the atmosphere that we are finding ourselves now, especially. I think that I understand a lot of folks who will be like, well, it's not moving quick enough. Okay, look. <laughs> if if you if you've seen how boards of directors in the past have had to fight tooth and nail to get shit moving, this is quick. I I used to be on a board of directors from two thousand one to two thousand four. I was a youth liaison for company uh, nonprofit that was handling Dow Chemical endowments and crap like that, and I was a full voting member. I know how stupid slow it can be to implement changes that affect the good of all your members. And I was, I was working at the time with computer club. Uh, I was working with computer challenge, uh, which was working with lower Southeast Michigan uh, computer clubs to bridge the digital divide at the time. Uh, literally teaching kids how to use the computers that were in their classrooms because there wasn't enough people who were trained. So we were doing stuff like, this is how you program a Lego robot. This is how you do animation. I went into schools and I taught. And so part of that work really showed me, like, when you see a nonprofit move on something, at least in that era, it's because there's been at least two or three meetings full of deliberation of how do we logistically make this happen. The fact that the trough is moving as swiftly as it is speaks to the, the technology you've got now but also to the membership and their drive to improve their community. The fact that you folks are moving as swiftly as you are, given my experience with nonprofits, is huge. And you are all to be commended. I think that that I want to, first of all, put that on our read, our board of directors, who um, are very good at, coming together at moving on things when they come up um, very swift in responding um, and deliberating. And we are able to, you know, we have a monthly meeting, we set an agenda and we get through it um, because uh, my time's precious. And I think their time is precious. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of that does lay on our board of directors who are willing to get in there and do work. But like, for instance, yeah, we're, we're in the middle. We just signed a contract with a company to do a new website. Uh, we hired a, one of the top nonprofit design firms for nonprofits, uh, Arkstone to redo our website, um, with the goal of having everything finished, ready to launch before Trace Mute in June. And, uh, because we wanted some completely new re beautiful new rebranding before, Parliament of World Religions in August. Mm. And so, but that process took a long time and people complained, but what they don't understand is we had to go through, we had to research what companies would work well with us, who would work with us, first of all, as a pagan group that restricted us. Then we had to research who, you know, who would work within our budget because we have a low end budget for a website redesign compared to other 
you know, large nonprofits. And then we had to put out, you know, requests for bid RFPs, you know, requests, requests for bids and go through bid process. And we had to approve the bid process. And then we, you know, that's a, that was took us 18 months and people don't realize just how long that process can be. And that's, that's typical for a new website. Mm-hmm. If you want it professionally built, 18 months is not unusual to get to that point where we have signed the contract and they're building now. The building of the website is the quick part. It's everything that gets to that point. You know, and even making decisions about what, you know, what content management system we're going to use. What membership management software are we going to use? Because we're, we're moving to professional membership management software. That's a lot. And, you know, um, one of the things that I've really tried to do is steer and the read has tried to do also, though, to allow us to move more quickly is to give our officers more autonomy. Um, I'm of the position, if you're doing your job, I'm going to leave you alone. I trust you. You've been put in this position for a reason. I trust you to do your job. And until I'm told otherwise, I assume that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And, but I mean, the other thing is, and I've said this before, I'll say it again. We're not a church. Okay. We're not going to be opening hoffs all over the country. A lot of people's got into their minds that, well, AFA is opening all these hoffs. Why isn't the truth? And that's because we're not a church. The AFA is. We are two completely different kinds of organizations. We are registered in New York and with the government. We are an educational nonprofit. And I don't see that changing because that's not who we are. Our mission is education, both educational programs like our esoteric, our clergy, our lore, which, by the way, offer collegiate level programs for free to our members. Actually, no, I think the clergy program is now $30 to pay for your badge. Like, did you get a little like ID badge thing when you complete it? But that's it. You know, we, our goal and our mission is education. And so we, we're not going to go out there and start churches. That's not what we're about. What we're about is teaching you how to start your own. It's very much don't give some, we're not going to give you a fish. We're going to teach you to fish. And I think that's a huge, a huge thing for us that people don't understand. And I do agree though with nonprofits, you know, it's, I've got eight other people I've got to get to agree on things. Right. And it's good because it doesn't allow one person to kind of run brand shot and set policy for the truth. It's bad because it does take longer to get things done. It definitely takes a lot to get a nonprofit moving though. So, I mean, but it, it is worth it not to have it all bogged down under one leadership. I mean, we're, I'm seeing other organizations that are failing in that way that um, it's way too much of a cult of personality or that no one else wants to take up the mantle. Well, and I think the other thing is, is the way that the trove has been set up, it keeps us from having issues of financial malfeasance. It keeps us from having issues of um, a lot of the issues that you see in nonprofits across the board that you see in the news where money has been embezzled or taken. You know, we have so many safeguards against that because that's not what we want. You know, we want, if money comes into the troth, it's going to go out towards the mission of the organization, whether that is, you know, paying for a Duna production, um, paying for 
we have a program called stewards and these are representatives of the troth in various areas across the world and it's not just in the u.s we have a steward in israel germany i mean we used to have one in korea because we had a lot of military members there and it also helps them to pay for a booth fee at pagan pride um it really you know we we try to put our money in everything which is you know why we're 100 percent volunteer driven no one gets paid and you know that's that's the reality of a pagan nonprofit. Um, most, I would argue, very few pagan nonprofits, even of our size, are one hundred percent volunteer driven. We are absolutely, you know, everyone who is doing working for the troth is doing it because of their love of heathenry community and the organization, and that I think is very important in what sets. I think that's what has allowed us to be sustainable in a way that other organizations keep in. But the other side is we imploded and blew up and we got all that out of the way in the pre-internet era too. That also helped. Oh yes. Our, yeah. Our big stuff happened in the eighties and nineties. So that was way before, you know, the internet. Um, in fact, I was watching video of Troth Newt 1994. Oh yeah. <laughs> you see, yes. Yeah. And they're talking about this thing called the internet. And like, they're all excited about it. <laughs> it's great. I was rolling because, oh, so many of you who've been with the show for, for longer were just like, oh, no. <laughs> look how young they looked. And, oh, the internet. Isn't that going to be really cool? I can't wait. We can put all kinds of things on there now. Just oh. think we'll be able to have meetings like, We'll be able to have all, you'll be able to communicate with each other instantly. And it was just precious. It was. That was also, that was also like the troth mute where they thought it would be a good idea to get people naked and try to like throw a longboat into the ocean. And it just didn't end well for anyone. By the way, you can find this. This is all on YouTube. Like I am, I am like, this is all up on YouTube. Um, We actually had a viewing party at the virtual troth mute in in, uh, January. It was a lot of fun. It was hilarious. I was there for that one. Oh man. And you know, but I tell you what, watching things like that is a great way to remind you how far we've come and how much we've grown. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, at the same time, like how many how many people, you know, that people in that video are, are you know, have been to prison, Dan Halloran. There's a whole story there. Yeah, that's One of the right. Most prominent heathens in the world was Dan Halloran. He was a New York City uh, City Council member, which is actually a more powerful position than some state Senate positions. Mm-hmm. And um, he was arrested for bribery and went to prison. And like, it was a big deal because the press in New York had extensively covered the fact that he was, he was heathen. And it was really bad. I'm not going to lie. It was a, pretty bad situation it was a real feeding frenzy for a while it did and um it was very unfortunate and um especially because dan was affiliated with the trust for a long time he was our corporate lawyer and he's a great example of why organizations shouldn't keep secrets because if the theodish had not kept secrets about his behavior in the 90s, you know, he, he probably would have never gotten where he was. But the fact of the matter is, um, 
he was inappropriate with, with, with a woman, with multiple women. And the Theodish needed him as a result, but did was not forward and public about that. And as a result, it allowed him to go into other organizations. And that's another thing I think we have to be very public and very intentional about is not keeping those secrets when people are removed from organizations from that kind of misconduct. Because that essentially is just covering for that and that, you know, once again, I, you know, I'll refer back to the truth, but we have a very specific policy on sexual misconduct, sexual harassment because of that, because we don't want to be that organization who covers up someone's bad conduct, especially in that way. And that's ha- but that's been an issue in the pagan community since I was a baby. You know, I can't tell you how many organizations, smaller local and regional organizations have blown up because of someone being a predator. I mean, realistically, that's been a a problem within the human condition for how long now? <laughs> Our I do very feel like, existence. I do feel like pagans for a long time really did try to cover it up because mm. we were so oh, afraid for sure. we were going to get painted with the same brush, and so therefore it was it, they were considered better to cover it up than expose it. Mm. Um, I mean, we went through the satanic panic, right? Yeah. There was a period of time where if you were a pagan and if you were associated with any sort of sexual misconduct, there was a real chance of heavy-duty ramifications from law enforcement. Hmm. So I am born and raised in East Arkansas, not far from West Memphis. I was a child, early teenage years, during the West Memphis Three. Um, And there are parts of this that people don't know. Um, if you're interested, go on YouTube and look up, um, you can look up the documentary March on Fort God. Uh, it is about Terry Riley, who's a friend of mine now. He used to be the boogeyman, though, when I was growing up, who opened a pagan store in Jonesboro, Arkansas. That's the same town where less than a year later, the West Memphis Three trial took place. And almost the entire town came out and literally marched against Terry and bullied him out of his occult store in the nineties, right before that trial took place. And you can't tell me that there weren't heavily biases against them because of that. You you can't. And that's, you know, I grew up around that. I grew up around the satanic panic. I understand, you know, it's kind of funny for me now being pagan having grown up in that, having being told as a child that Terry Riley was going to come kidnap me and sacrifice me to Satan. And now I consider him a friend. <laughs> it's just, it's a joke. It, first time I made it, I said, you know, you were my boogeyman growing up. He said, I get that a lot, <laughs> but I mean, that's, and what scares me is I feel like we're going back there. I really do. It does feel like we're mm. going back there. I mean, it would make sense that this country would wander back into that area considering you know, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, plus all the anti-Semitism that's going on, plus all the overt and loud and disgusting bigotry and racism that is, I mean, it was quiet-ish for a while, and now it's just there again, and we're like, didn't we fucking get rid of you guys, like, 20 years ago? Or no. longer than that? No. Actually, that's the problem. But we at least... I mean, have, what, quieted them a little bit 
they just I mean, you, you look at the history of the United States, and we were very close to being on the other side of that war in World War II. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. I think one of the things that we have to realize is that the internet has actually made it worse because it used to be some kooky guy that lived in a town and he might have a few friends and they might get some books and some newsletters and maybe they would travel to something right now. It's so easy for people to find each other and get radicalized. Um, Even children whose parents, even people who grow up with parents who might be not, you know, who might be progressive, who might, otherwise not be that kind of person right and it's still easy for them to get radicalized online it's so easy and it's very hard to fight i think one of the biggest fights every inclusive heathen organization or really heathen has right now is how do i intercept other than be radicalized it's hard because i love heathenry and i love the truth but it's not my entire life but for these people, this identity, this racism is their entire life. And it's, you know, I have a friend who is a former hardcore white supremacist who has since come out, made amends, and he actually helps people get out of white supremacist groups. And he and I have talked a lot about the radicalization problem and how to fight it. And you almost have to give your life full time to it. And have a lot of people give their life full time to it and also potentially get some foreign backing from other countries to uh, do some social media, not great stuff to be able to do it. And the fact of the matter is, I've said, you know, if you really want to fight the right wing bigotry, we're going to have to do more than what we're doing. And people are going to have to get uncomfortable. And a lot of people don't want to get uncomfortable. A lot of people are perfectly happy where they are and don't want to have the discomfort that it would take to actually truly put that fight up. And that scares me. And it scares me because I live, you know, where I live, the school my godson attends, a man stood up and said that gay people, trans people need to be executed and people applauded at the school board meeting. And that's the school district my godson attends. That's where my best friend lives, you know. Um, but so many people, it doesn't directly affect them. And so they're, they don't care as much. Well, it's easier for them to turn a blind eye because they don't see it. They don't experience every minute of every day of their lives that, that fear to leave their house, that fear to go to a party, to go to a coffee shop, for God's sakes, or to even go to work. Because they're afraid they're going to be talked to and discriminated against or violently harmed. I mean, I grew up in a relatively small town. It was predominantly white with a fairly large Arabic and Muslim community. But there was a story about um, because there there was a there was actually a gay club in Coldwater that was kind of incognito but if you knew you knew and if you didn't you just went there to dance and have a great time um but there was an individual who was walking home from that bar one night and five or six guys followed him and beat him within an inch of his life with a tire iron 
in downtown Coldwater, which at the time had two, maybe three major lights, if that. You know, they had just built the Walmart kind of thing. And we're talking, it used to be a fucking cornfield. But like, what we're trying to say is these pockets of racism are not pockets. These pockets of bigotry are not pockets. They exist right down the road from you. They exist in your workplace. They exist behind your keyboard. Because just as easily as we are capable of talking to one another tonight, they're just as easily able to talk to one another. And I I agree with your comment earlier about how the internet made it worse. You're absolutely right. I think a great example of that is I, you know, I live in Little Rock and our city is very much divided by an interstate right down the middle. Right. And if you live on one side of it, that's the good part of town, which is also the white part of town. And the other side is not right. So my husband and I are in the process of buying a new house and it's on the not good side of town. Right. And I'm talking about it with one of my coworkers. One of my other coworkers made some pretty snide remark about where my new house is. Like, I could never go to that side of town, blah, blah, blah. And it's, the fact of the matter is, that side of town is the Hispanic and black side of town. That's why people say the things they say. And to me, I'm excited. You know, here I am. I'm excited moving into a multi-ethnic neighborhood that has a real freaking Mexican grocery store right outside of it. I'm excited. (laughs) Like, this is awesome. (laughs) Because I found living in multi-ethnic neighborhoods, I don't get bothered for being heathen the way I have in all white neighborhoods. Um, Neighbors tend to be a lot more tolerant in neighborhoods that aren't all white, you know? And so my, you know, I'm excited about my new neighborhood. I am excited about my new house and my coworker. And I'm just like, really, really? You know, it, it was definitely, you know, from someone who claims to be super progressive and this, that, and the other, and you're just kind of looking at them going, that was racist. <laughs> but it, it, it's, that's how much it permeates our lives. That kind of racism, mm-hmm. that kind of casual racism really permeates our lives. Um, that's why so many people come in to, you know, I'm, I'm very active on Reddit and you get so many questions. I am so-and-so, insert identity that's not white. Can I be heathen? Yeah, and the fact of the matter is, yeah. Um, in fact, it, 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 historically we can prove it, but you know, heaven forbid someone want to hear that. That's the other reason I can't be on TikTok because then I'll start arguing with people again. I I understand. I I do. Like <laughs> most of my engagement has in the last couple of months has been like, excuse me, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just leave I leave that to Ben KG. I let him argue for me. He's communications director now. He That's can do fair. It. I yeah. I, I, I kinda had to put like stop making videos for a bit because it was like you like you were mentioning earlier, like the, the frustration and the anxiety. Um mm-hmm. I I've kind of like dropped away from TikTok entirely. I, I look at it for content. It's great if I want to know what's going on in the world and I don't want it filtered through, you know, three corporate lenses all at once. But the other part of the problem is, is that sometimes that that filtering process is absolutely necessary because you, unless you know what you're looking for and you know how to sift out ice cream from bullshit, you're going to get a lot more bullshit. Oh, yeah. And that's I think that has become 
such an issue and I really just do try to stay away from a lot of that because for my own mental health. I mean, Lord, you know, I a therapy is a great thing. And if you can afford it and you have the opportunity, I, I personally think everyone should be in therapy. But I think especially if you're someone who is actively working in spaces and trying to work against racism and mm-hmm. other forms of bigotry, you need it. And especially, you know, I got lucky and found a therapist who is pagan and is very open to like is super progressive and is really cool. And I've now followed her through three different practices because I like can't imagine not having well, her as my therapist. <laughs> When you find the one, no, I totally, I, I get it. Yeah. I told Crystal she moved. I was following her. So <laughs> you can't leave me. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it definitely is the thing. And it's been great because she has been such a great way to have that pressure relief valve that I can't al- always have other places because there is a lot of emotion. And I feel like you have to work through your own bullshit essentially (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. you have to work through your own bullshit too in those spaces one of the things that i i take a great deal of heart when it comes to the work that you've done with the troth the work that the troth itself has done over the course of its lifetime is its very existence is a testament that we can change for the better Mm -hmm. the the fact that it's not only around but is actually thriving speaks that we can come out of some of the most horrific roots and horrific background that heathenry came out of nationalism romanticism racism and we can turn from those things and become far better than what we were the fact that the troth not only exists but thrives and that it thrives in the way it is now speaks directly to the ability for us to change for the better I think one thing to re- that I always remind myself of is for every Edward Thorson, there's a Diane Laura Cross. And for every Steve McNallan, there's a Diana Paxson. We have some rather dark roots. And um, I, if you listen to no other episode of my podcast, please go listen to the first one where we ter- talk about the first Anglican Church of Odin. Because... It's one of the funniest things. Uh, a guy in the 30s tried to take the Anglican church, take out Jesus and God, put in Thor, Odin, and Balder, and shook it real hard and created a religion where they ended every prayer with Wotan. Oh, my. Yeah, Ben and I even sing some of the hymns. It's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, like we go in on this thing. Um, it was so ridiculous that Adolf Hitler laughed the guy out of his office. <laughs> wow. That. But his books are what influenced a lot of early Odinism, mm-hmm. uh, A. Red Mills. And so I think that's one thing that we have to, you know, yes, we have racist roots. I think one of the beautiful things that has happened over the last 10 years is that we're starting to dig them out. We're starting to really deeply examine who we are as a religion. And I feel like we're getting back to the actual essentials of our religion, community, service, frith, you know, and relationships. And because that's what heathenry is to me. It's about relationships Mm -hmm. and not so much the, high church rituals i once went into a church to a ritual that was done completely in old high frisian and we worshiped something obviously but i had no idea what was going on 
know, that was the night that was the two thousands in heathenry. What can I say? You know, you, you had stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also really am excited in heathenry. I feel like we're getting into more experimental times and it's exciting. Like um, I gave a workshop at Trosmith this year on reconstructionist method, not reconstructionism, but genuinely how to take, okay, I have found this full information. How can I test it? And the idea is because we really, as to once again, quote Ben Wagoner, it's time we start doing the lab work more. Yes. And really put our ideas because that was, you know, in the 2000s, Heathenry was a lot of navel gazing and book hoarding. And now I really am excited to see it's more about action and experimenting and trying. And I have this idea. Let's see if it will work. And to me, I think that is probably the only way heathenry is going to actually thrive and grow and be a lasting religious tradition is if we start trying new things and not just experimenting with what we think they may have done. I, I really have to say ago. the the two authors that most come to mind after Paxson that I'm the most excited for who are writing right now and are publishing right now are Winifred Hodge-Rose and Cat Heath. Uh, yeah, I love Cat. Oh, her stuff is so great. Like I genuinely wish I'd had elves, witches and gods when I started doing save work because mm-hmm. holy shit. Uh, it wasn't there, but it's the book that I wish I'd had, and it's now the book I throw at anybody who breathes the word Sather at me. <laughs> um, I So I, I have very, very strong feelings on Save because I don't believe that it's something that should ever be practiced alone, and I don't I don't approve of people teaching themselves because I do know of someone who did and um, lost a piece of soul, and it killed her. And so I am very I am militant about Save is not a self a self-study subject um, that you must work with someone else in the beginning because you need to have those anchors and safeguards. And I will preach that. And like people disagree with me, safe workers disagree with me, but after seeing someone die as a result of that, I'm very, uh, very adamant about it. I could, I can understand why. And having done, having started my journey in safe work solo versus the people that I came to work with at, on uh there's nothing like having people being able and willing to call you on your horse shit if nothing else and keep you safe yeah. yeah i i i mean this is i honestly think this is something we we encounter pretty frequently on this show in general is and we really got to hand it to jim for for writing the spiritual accounting pdf that he did because it has become a meme in our in our circles that you need to have other people who are not in the thick of it with you to provide you one of the other uh, tripods for the stool that good discernment rests on. And that's lore people and divination for us. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to have other people. Otherwise you're just going to get mired in your own horse shit if nothing else. Well, and I'm a, I'm a fan of the gods. If the gods tell you to do something, that's great. If the gods tell you to tell me to do something, then we got problems. Because, uh, and that's where cults start. Yep. I've watched so, so many of those on social media pop up, especially lately. Like, instant communication is a great thing. Discernment is also a great thing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, well, I am the one who wrote the mice method Mm. for signs, um, if you guys have heard of that. 
No. It's very popular on Reddit. So it's basically a four-prong method for discerning if something is a sign and should be investigated further. So it is, is what you're looking at meaningful, interpretable, congruent with the being in question, and extraordinary? Ooh. Could you do nice. us a favor? I like that. Give us the link for that, because I think that our community would yeah. definitely profit yeah. from that. And the whole idea is this is not a end-all, be-all. This is just a gut-check starting point, uh, especially for people who are new and may not necessarily have the familiarity. The reason I wrote that is because I grew up in, once again, evangelical, fundamentalist, where people would see signs all the time. And once again, circle back around competitive spirituality. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do is basically, you know, just because you saw two ravens on top of your car doesn't mean that you're actually seeing a sign. It could also just be that, you know, there were two birds. there. This was just an attempted murder. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yep. Sometimes it's a sign. Sometimes it's a crow doing crow shit. Yeah, and Odin's as, just there to shit on the top of your car. <laughs> yeah, and so for me, I think that's really important to be able to just have that and be able to say, is this a sign? Is this not a sign? Should I investigate this further? It's a really great way to gut check something to make sure it's not you trying to make something mundane more than it is. You know, obviously, if mushrooms grow in my front yard spelling out four, that's probably a sign. Or my godson doing something a little shady, which I would either way I would believe. So, <laughs> yeah. um, right quick because we're we're coming up on the two and a half hour mark. Are there any? Oh wow! Yeah, I know. Me too. Uh, is there anything that you want to plug as far as plugging your pluggables go? Uh, is there any uh, podcasts that you really want to turn people on to? I, mean, I know that Heathen Histories is one of them. Uh, yeah, Heathen History, uh, HeathenHistory.com. That is uh, the podcast I do with Ben Wagoner. Uh, it's not a Troth official podcast, but it's done by two Troth members. And we have a lot of really great stuff on there. It's all long form. There is also, um, of course, the Troth. If you are at all interested in helping us join our mission to promote and educate people about inclusive heathenry, please come check us out. I genuinely love the organization. And then also I want to promote our Troth. Uh, this is our three-volume, basically the most complete encyclopedia of heathenry that has ever been done, written by my kindred brother, um, and those are available on Amazon. Pretty much any bookseller uh, will do those, and they are literally murder books, meaning if you drop them on someone's head, it could kill them. That's how big they are. <laughs> I have the hardbacks. It's even worse. Weaponized. I mean, it, it is, is my it ultimate really is. goal to write a book thick enough to murder a man, so... Oh, and also I will say, if you are looking for a copy of the Havamal, the Troth does have a, have our own um, translation. And for every copy that's purchased, we donate a copy to either our prison inreach or a copy to our military outreach program as well, where we will send copies of the Havamal portable altars and different things to people who are deployed or currently on ships. We work with a lot of lay leaders. We have Navy lay leaders, and we also have some people who are leading worship groups at the various places that have uh, basic training as well. Nice. That's so awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And all links will be in the show notes. So yes. And also really? there should be a link in uh, that link tree will also have my uh, abortion essay as well. Very Excellent. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing so much with us tonight. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's the problem of ADHD people. We just don't shut up. <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> I, I mean, we've all shared plenty about ourselves. It's nice to hear somebody else share mm-hmm, right, about right. themselves. Um, yeah, I do. I do appreciate your openness. It's it's nice to mm. meet another woman that doesn't have that barrier put up. What? My thing is, is that if I kept secrets, um, the focus would just dig them up and use them against me. So why not? Why not be in control of my own story? Absolutely. Yeah, Makes I agree sense. with that. Well, also, you. I want to know where these chapters are of your book. I want to read this. I am into zombie apocalypse. <laughs> oh, oh. Okay. I, I will. I, I have you on. Discord, those on so your, I will go grab yeah, them. You've got me. Yes. Are those <laughs> on, your, on your blog, Caitlin. They are on my blog. Yes. I, All I, right. I haven't started the one for my author name yet because I haven't gotten there, but eventually. Well, yes. <laughs> one step at a time, people. <laughs> well, thank you, Lauren, so much for joining us. Thank you once again to all our listeners. Uh, we appreciate you so much. And um, we will hope to talk to you again soon around the fire.
走。